I thought she knew what I'd been through and what I needed out of this surgery. What I didn't need was to take that extra time off work. I was lucky to even have a job after that. No. No, no, she should have just stuck to what we agreed to. Hello. You're listening to the Medical Protection Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. John Marwick. Today's Case File podcast is titled, Consent, Really? In it, we'll be using an actual case to address the question, do you always have to obtain explicit consent? We'll hear about a gynecologist who thought she was doing the best for her patient when she changed the procedures she was carrying out during an operation under general anaesthetic. A change she thought would be covered by the consent the patient had signed, so she was pretty surprised to hear her patient had filed a formal complaint. I'm joined today by Dr. Samantha King, a GP and one of Medical Protection's experienced medical legal consultants based in Auckland, New Zealand. As always, these cases are real. However, details have been changed to protect the identity of those involved. Hello, Sam. Nice to be with you again. Hello, John. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you know what this case is about, but perhaps what we should do, first of all, is maybe just share um, the situation from the gynecologist's point of view. And I've got a, an actor recording um, the, uh, the story. My patient was a 46-year-old woman that I'd seen roughly two years before when I performed a hysterectomy and suburethral sling operation. She was still complaining of some stress incontinence and dyspareunia, and I couldn't make a clear diagnosis at vaginal examination. I recommended a EUA and cystoscopy and, depending on the findings, the release of any scar tissue in the anterior vaginal wall and injection into the perineum, which I hoped would relieve her symptoms. The patient signed a consent form covering the EUA, refashioning the anterior vaginal wall and included a standard clause that stated, I understand that procedures additional to that specified above may be carried out if it is in my best interests and can be justified for medical reasons. At operation, I found that the problem seemed to be in the posterior rather than the anterior vaginal wall, and since I could fix this with a fairly minor Fenton's procedure to remove scar tissue and so avoid a further GA, I thought this would be covered by the consent already received. I carried out the procedure. Afterwards, I was very surprised to find that the patient put in a formal complaint that she had not agreed to the Fenton's procedure. This has certainly made me more careful about the whole consenting process. Must have been pretty difficult for our uh, for our surgeon there, Sam. I think so. I think uh, all doctors find it difficult when patients complain, especially when it's not expected. You know, she obviously Absolutely. was thinking she did a great job for the patient, and uh, so it was a big surprise to her that she received the complaint. Now. This was a New Zealand case, and I know that our listeners will be from all around the world. Would you just briefly maybe tell them what the situation, how it differs in our country and how complaints are managed? Sure. So New Zealand is a no-fault jurisdiction, so we do not have litigation in general. Very rare would it be for someone, a doctor to be sued. 
And as a result of that, we have a specific complaints process through the Health and Disability Commissioner, or the HDC, as we like to call it. And essentially, in the GMC system, that would be more like the ombudsman, where um, patients can go to complain. And so patients in New Zealand complain to the HDC about uh, care provided by the clinicians in New Zealand. And I suppose in some other countries, uh, it might have been a lawyer's letter. Absolutely. Uh, most other jurisdictions, as you know, will have a lot of litigation. And so normally it would be about compensation and damages. Whereas in New Zealand, it's it's nothing like that. We There is no uh, monetary value to patients to complain. And uh, it's really about uh, holding doctors accountable in New Zealand more than money. So what we're learning today, or what we're focusing on today, of course, is what we can learn from this case about the issues around consent. Are complaints you know, involving consent common, Sam? Yes, they are, John. Uh, through the HDC, we know that 15% of all complaints are related to consent. So that's quite a significant number uh, in New Zealand, at least. And often those things are outcome driven. So when a patient doesn't like the outcome of the procedure that they've undergone, that often uh, drives them to complain. And the easiest thing to complain about is the consent process. And so often they will say, this complication happened. I was never warned about that complication in the, in the uh, consent process. So often it's about a lack of information. Uh, I think also it can relate to patient expectations not being corrected. Particularly, for example, if you are a plastic surgeon where parents medicine is involved, patients often have a very high expectation of what you're able to do for them. And when they don't, uh, when you don't achieve that, then they are likely to complain. So unfortunately for doctors involved in cosmetic surgery, uh, they're very likely to get those sorts of complaints. The other complaint uh, that we often see related to consent is that patients don't have enough time to make a decision, a considered decision between the proposed operation or procedure and actually having it done. Now, obviously, in the emergency situation, patients don't get time because it's an emergency. But generally speaking, for elective procedures, it's always important for, to give patients the opportunity to go away to think about it and then make a decision, have an opportunity to ask questions. So for those um, doctors who decide one day, oh, yes, we're going to have this significant operation and then propose to do it in two days' time. If things don't work out and complications ensue, you might find actually that patients do complain. They say, well, I, didn't, I wasn't given enough time in order to make an appropriate decision. So have a, you know, that, I think that's important for um, our listeners to think about. And probably the last thing related to consent is that it's not uncommon, particularly in our public sector, in New Zealand, where something has changed uh, in terms of what the proposed procedure is on the day of the procedure, and it might be that the patient is sitting in the in the theatre, wait in the operate in a pre-op, waiting to go in when something is varied, and they they might have already had their pre-med, and 
so patients don't have enough time they get caught on the hop and often they're not in the they're not even competent to be able to make any decision at that point so it's not uncommon for some doctors to get caught out with that and, and a complaint ensues can you give me an example of that latter that last thing sam what, what, what sort of thing changes you know suddenly on the day um for example this was another gynecology case that i was involved in where a patient was in the pre-op waiting to go into theater and the uh, specialist had decided at the last moment that it might actually be beneficial for the patient to have a um, an oophorectomy and that wasn't planned previously but it was just considered we should just do this now so they were going to take out both ovaries and the patient who was anxious because she was having a major gynecological procedure anyway, a hysterectomy, uh, was faced with, you know, we think you should have this. And so she hastily said yes, even though she felt on the inside that she wasn't prepared to make that decision on the fly. And so subsequent to the operation, the patient made an HDC complaint and the uh, surgeon was severely criticised for changing the consent process or changing the pr proposed procedure at the last moment. So that's something similar, I, I guess, in Scott, some similarities to the current case. And, and thanks, Sam, for those pointers. Maybe, maybe we may come back to some of those other things about patient expectation and giving people adequate time. In this particular case, of course, uh, the patient was under a general anaesthetic uh, when the change was made. Um, but the doctor felt that it was in the patient's best interest. Is that not good enough? Unfortunately not, John. I think if it's in the emergency situation, of course, we have to act in the patient's best interest when, when time is not on your side. And it might be completely impractical. The patient might be unconscious and you need to save the patient's life. Of course, you would proceed. But outside of that, if it's an elective procedure, it would be considered very paternalistic for doctors to just do what we believed to be right. And, and I can understand it from the doctor's perspective. The doctor felt that they were making the right decision for the patient. And if you think about that, it was a, it was a minor variation. It was rather than anterior vagina, it was posterior vagina. It was, the patient was already under GA. The patient was expecting a procedure. The patient had had a significant operation just two months before. And this was relatively minor by comparison. And so from the doctor's point of view, I can understand why it made a lot of sense. You know, in the public system in New Zealand, for example, the patient might not make it to the top of the waiting list for a second procedure uh, for another few months. So it just seemed expedient to the doctor. So from a clinician's perspective, of course, we can understand why the doctor proceeded. But unfortunately, uh, without consent, it's, it's not considered lawful. So it's never okay to assume consent? I think it depends on what the procedure is. For, for example, if you're taking a blood test and the patient rolls up their sleeve and puts their arm in front of you and allows you to put the cuff on to take the blood, uh, then you can say that's implied consent. And I don't think anyone's going to quibble about that. And that might be the same too for an examination where a patient gets up on the um, examination couch 
Although that said, it's always important, particularly for intimate examinations where the patient needs to expose a part of their body, that you do get explicit consent as you go. Uh, I wouldn't assume consent. You can't say that you've got implied consent, uh, even if the patient does get on the couch. But for anything more than that, I think it's really important to yeah. get explicit consent. And in primary care uh, in New Zealand over the last a uh, few years, there's been an increasing move for even for something like an air syringe, a consent form is signed, which is, we never used to do that, but it's very common now to do that. And and one of our earlier cases in this series of podcasts, Sam, was, was uh, just that case of a GP who thought they were just doing a routine chest examination and the patient uh, felt that she'd been sexually uh, assaulted just because it wasn't explanation and consent uh, agreed. Um, yeah, sadly, that's actually really common, um, uh, particularly for our male colleagues. It's uh, certainly, it's a very tricky because often those complaints come out of the blue for our male colleagues. And uh, so it's always important to, to get explicit consent and to offer a chaperone. In this case, uh, Sam, the, the consent form that the hospital had actually included a clause that said, um, anything else that th they agreed to anything else that was considered important to, at the time is that not good enough when I read this case um, I was quite surprised that the DA the hospital would have such a clause because it's too broad a bucket there's too many variables that uh, can go into this bucket to make it uh, to be able to consider it to be informed consent and I think the outcome of this case, uh, that particular clause was removed from the hospital consent forms because it was deemed to be inappropriate. Well, okay, so we we can learn quite a lot from this from this particular case. Uh, the doctor in question in this situation was, I think, found um, in breach of the patient's rights. Is that right? That's right. So in New Zealand, we have a code of consumer rights and this doctor was found to have breached a number of the points of the yeah, points in the code. So would you like to summarize some of the things that you think um, we can learn from this about the whole issue of consent? I think the first thing is to make sure that on your consent form, you have listed all the possibilities so that the patient is aware of what you're planning and what the different possibilities are. There's, there isn't a difficulty with varying the procedure that you perform in the end, so long as the patient is aware that it was a possibility. And what seems minor to a clinician is not necessarily minor to a patient. And just to be aware of that, often having any surgery for a patient is really a big deal. And so it's important for us to recognize that as clinicians. I think it's also important that the patient has been given enough time to be able to consider whether they want this procedure or not, um, to make um, plans for themselves, as in this case, where the patient needed to make plans in order to um, have enough time for recovery. For most patients, if this had happened, they probably would have been okay, and they would have been happy and not complained. But I think you'd have to flip that on its head and say, you know, if if you'd proceeded and the patient's happy, you've lost nothing. Or if you hadn't proceeded 
and the patient was angry with you because you didn't proceed. Why didn't you do it, doctor? I was already there. I was under GA. Now I have to rebook and take more time off. You're not going to get in trouble for that. But you will get in trouble, as in, in this case, where you've proceeded without appropriate consent. So proceduralists ought not uh, just assume that they've got consent. And of course, in general points, the, the whole business of consent, it's not just about a consent form, is it? It really is a whole process around how you explain things, how you find out about what's important to your individual patient and, and, and give them the time to to make the right choice for them. No, that's right. Consent is a process, not an event. That's that's a really good point. Sam, thank you very much. I think we've learned a lot from, from this case and, uh, and I think we can all think more about consent in the future. You're welcome, John. If you're a member of Medical Protection and you want to know more about today's podcast or, or particularly about consent, please take a look at the links to further training uh, which will be in the podcast description. With that, we reach the end of today's podcast. Consent, really? If you're new to podcasts, maybe listening for the first time, make sure you subscribe to our channel to make listening in the future easier. You can access this podcast from all the major apps, including Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so forth. And for more information about medical protection, or if you're already a member and would like a certificate for listening, please look for the details in the episode description. I've been your host, John Marwick. Until the next time, Matewa. Ma